Well, it's our great privilege to take the Word of God together and find our way to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 as we continue on in our study of this wonderful book that just has surprised us at every turn, really. Um, and I, uh, I hope that you are blessed today by what the Holy Spirit has captured for us in chapter 12, uh, 7. We're looking at verses 1 to 12. I want to say that the sage, as you know, has shown us time and again in Ecclesiastes this effective evangelistic strategy that presents the good news of gospel truth against the bad news backdrop of a, of a fallen and sin-cursed world. And he does it more aggressively here in chapter 7, first 12 verses. He presents the godly life and the godless life side by side, but in a way that exalts the godly life over the godless life. That's what he does here. Now, we know that we cannot save anybody, right? We, we know that. Um, or reason them into the kingdom. Uh, as some have said, fallen individuals couldn't care less really about gospel truth and will tell you that in no uncertain terms, even become hostile sometimes. Christian life is really foolishness to them. We know that. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul tells us that quite clearly. Think about it, all right? This makes sense. They hear that you must be last to be first, to forfeit your life to save it, to be weak, in order to be strong, humble to be exalted, inadequate to be, to be adequate. Death is gain. Submission brings ultimate freedom. Perfect rest is found in taking on a yoke of slavery. Becoming a fool is wise. And infirmities become a context for rejoicing. Well, what do you expect <laughs> when you hear something like that, right? It makes perfect sense that they would reject it. It's foolishness. Well, thank God he's in charge of saving souls, not us. But make no mistake, God is pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, right? That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So we appeal to their reason. We appeal to their reason. And reason would dictate that what really is absurd and even ironic is the life of the godless, it's powerless to control life, subject to God's ordained cadence of nature, to the consequences of a fallen world, to the fallen mind that reinterprets bad as good and good as bad, that constantly redefines existence in search of the one version of it that will best suit selfish inclinations and appetites and faces divine judgment after death. Now, who would want any part of that life? That is foolish. We might sum up the text this way as we work our way through it, and I've published this in the bulletin for you along with the, uh, the eight steps that I'd like to take you through. The, the better life desires godly testimony, sober thinking and a contrite heart, correction, behavior worthy of, of imitating, to be slow to anger, to have a proper view of reality and a display of godly wisdom. So that's, that's the better life. Well, let's get into it. And what I'd like to do is, is what the sage does um, by implication. He shows implicitly that the life belonging to the realm above the sun is far better than the life belonging to the realm under the sun. 
And this contrast becomes very clear to us right away. Two kinds of lifestyles, two worldviews, two ways of approaching life. The godless life, life that is separated from God, and the godly life that the sage has already defined in the first half of the book as the good life, life that pleases God, life that God gives as a gift. And we know it today as life in Christ. And more than this, his contrast shows the godly life to be hands down better than the godless life. The phrase better than is a dead giveaway. It's a phrase that is prevalent in in wisdom literature, and it occurs here no less than six times out of 12 verses. That's half. And the six other verses where it doesn't occur, it's obvious. And in verses 11 to 12, the sage uses a related word, advantage. So this life that belongs to the realm above the sun and operates by supernatural worldview is better than the best that we find under the sun because God gives it. That's why. And the one who is on the receiving end of it will live it, as we'll see in a moment, distinctly differently than the way the godless live their lives. In fact, the distinction is stark and undeniable. And that leads me to say that the godly life, the godly life is, uh, uh, is a life that, that the godless would never choose never. As we already established, it's foolishness to them. Before that could happen, then he would need to be born from the realm above the sun, or born from above, as the New Testament puts it. Why is that? Well, because what this life sees as better than than the godless life actually appears to the godless to be much worse than their best. That's why. Now, before we see what this godly life looks like, it's important that I just say a brief word to the passage before us and that it is written in Hebrew poetry. It's not written in prose. Now, Hebrew poetry is built on parallelism. And um, here's how it works in our passage. The sage will set a truth in the first part of the verse And then he'll elaborate it on the second half. And sometimes he'll even continue elaborating on it in the next verse. And then parallelism will help uh, help us to, as we understand it, to to, to a large extent to understand the meaning of his terms. So it's important that you, you understand how the author communicates this truth in Hebrew poetry. So let's look at the first claim. The first claim. The godly life desires godly testimony, even more than riches, which is better than dying wealthy, um, a wealthy godless person. The godly life desires godly testimony, even more than riches, which is better than dying a wealthy godless person. Here's how the sage puts it in verse 1. A good name is better than good oil, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, keep in mind, the second, the second line sheds light on the first, uh, and so we see that it mentions death. So what connection does death have to the first line? Well, if you had time to study some of the terms in the first line, like oil, you would discover that, the, that oil here is a kind of oil that is used in the Old Testament burial customs. Really, it's a scented oil. Ancient Israel used perfume 
on their dead in order to cover the smell of decay. That's what they did. Now, wealthier families could afford wealthier perfume. It carried over into the first century as well in Israel's culture. In John 12, you might remember that Mary anoints Jesus' feet with oil. And Jesus explains it as a preparation for the day of my burial. Interesting. Now, the sage tells us that a good name in line one, or the first half, which is really a good reputation, your name, your reputation, is far better than burial, burial oil. Or to put it another way, it's better to die with a good testimony and without scented oil than to die with a bad testimony and with scented oil. <laughs> no matter how pleasant the smell of the oil or how costly, it cannot cover the rotten reputation of a godless individual. The mention, then, of one's death being better than his birth in the second line refers to the time, uh, the lifetime of developing a good reputation. So at birth, you have none. At death, you've spent your whole life building one. From the perspective, then, of above-the-sun lifestyle, what the, what the sage means by a good reputation is a godly testimony. And you know that from the time of your new birth in Christ to the time that you die is your divinely allotted time to testify to God before the world. It's more important to us, then, how God sees us and how the world sees us. So a good testimony is part of this life above the sun, a godly testimony, to be specific. Number two, the godly life desires sober thinking and a contrite heart that lead to repentance, which is better than a numbing, frivolous posture. That's in verses two to four. Now, we know that people don't like to face certain facts of life, right? Death is one of them. Aging with declining health, is another. And tragedy is yet another. So they try very hard to recreate reality to be as positive as possible. They've become masters of their own little worlds. But their creations really are nothing but fantasies, untrue shams. Those of us who know biblical truth are not surprised even the sage told us back in the first half of the book that, that this is the kind of life that God assigns to people who operate by that satanic lie that you can live a life without God in it and become your own God. They have to cover up the sin in their lives that wear away the quality of their lives. They have to make excuses to explain away the consequences of Adam's sin. They have to redefine bad and, and immoral as good and moral and also the other way around. It, it's, it's, the pathet it's a pathetic way that the godless cope with the challenges of a fallen world that is out of their control. They desperately want to be happy when they have no reason to be or right to be. Let's party. 
They avoid and reject anything that might expose the many aspects of their sinful and miserable lives. But the, the life that is born from the realm above the sun is completely different. It's grounded in biblical truth. It wants to live an honest life before God Almighty. It believes, therefore, that, verse 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because in the, uh, that, that is the end of every person and the living takes it to heart. So the sage says that the godly live soberly, knowing that their lives will end someday. Rather than deny, ignore, or try to cheat death, no, they live it with, with death in mind. And when you know that life is short and you accept the inevitable, well, then you make every moment of life count. You take life at face value. You take it soberly. The house of mourning is a figure for places where mourning takes place, obviously. It's, it's at those places where people usually are the most serious about life. It's not as... It's not so much their mourning as it is their clear view of reality that the sage exposes here. The godly know his that the godly knows his mortality. He he doesn't say, "Listen, let's not talk about death, please. It's not allowed here. It's only nice thoughts. This is a nice thoughts zone." Now that's a fallen attitude that the sage characterizes as the house of feasting. It's a figure for carefree and reckless living. And when they're young, they think, of course, they live forever, and they keep pushing the gloomy discussions of death further and further away into the future. Like, save it for the nursing home when I'm unable to walk and I'm at death's door. But living life by ignoring the inevitable really drives one to indulge in frivolous activities, a waste of precious years of life, so says the sage. And there's more. He continues in verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Now here's proof that a serious outlook on life is not dull, it's not depressing, but it's genuinely happy. But how can a heart be happy when the face is sad? Ah, it's another paradox of the Christian life. Sorrow here is a godly sorrow. It's not a worldly sorrow. So what's the difference? Well, worldly sorrow regrets getting caught, like Judas did. The person who experiences a godly sorrow, however, is glad that his sin has been revealed because he wants to get rid of it. And rather than hide from it, he repents and gets right with God and right with its neighbor, with his neighbor. It's not surprise, it's, it's not um, surrounding yourself with funny people or, or getting rid of negativity in your life or trying to, trying to have as many belly laughs as possible because you know that laughter is good medicine. That's all a charade. It simply covers the wounds of, of the hurt. It picks up the spirits of the despondent. That's all. Laughter by itself is no better than a good drug that treats only the symptoms of a serious disease. The Christian life is not about soothing a guilty conscience with celebration. It's about facing our sins honestly with repentance. 
which is, and the byproduct of which is great rejoicing. I, I don't have to tell any genuine Christian here that, that, um, that there's great joy in repentance, right? We all know that. How light and free do you feel after confessing your sins to God and when necessary to those whom you have offended? It's a liberating, joyous feeling. The sage emphasizes this all the more in verse 4 with a reference to mourning. He says, The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. Again, the house of pleasure, another figure for this numbing frivolity that so characterizes the lost. They will find any excuse to celebrate just to escape the monotony and the difficulties of life. They leapfrog from one holiday to the next, one get-together to the next, one party to the next, to keep their spirits up. But not so with the Christian. He doesn't cope. Christians don't cope, they conquer. Christian walks strong and confidently. He receives well his lot, and he rejoices in it because he knows that God's brought it his way and for his good. He has a keen sense of reality because he doesn't live frivolously and in denial. He takes his sin seriously, even though it's been forgiven by the blood of Christ. And he seeks forgiveness and comfort from his heavenly Father. He also knows how much the sin-sick world needs a Savior. And he mourns for it. Number three, the godly life welcomes correction. While which is better by far than the mellifluous, unjustified praise. Verses 5 and 6. This is yet another paradox. The world teaches that no one likes to be rebuked. No one likes to be rebuked. People bristle when you correct them. They become defensive. In our culture right now, it's absolutely out of line to correct someone or to tell him that he's wrong when it comes to his lifestyle. And life today is a free-for-all. You do what you want, when you want, how you want, and it doesn't matter who likes it or not because, well, that's your right. This thinking operates on a national level. We know it's what gave rise to to the violence and to the riots and vandalism of 2020, if you remember, which Capitol Hill called free speech. It's also on a family level where parental guidance is all but missing and kids are left to bring themselves up. And don't the public schools know it and take, it, take the opportunity to teach the destructive doctrines of critical race theory and trans theory, right? Correction under the sun is mischaracterized as failure and an attack on someone's character. Might as well just say it's racist. What did you do wrong now, loser? Our culture doesn't like it. Rather, it prefers stroking and praise and adoration. Everyone's a winner. And that's why there's no healthy competition in public schools anymore. And no different academic tracks for students who excel and and really need to be challenged more than the average because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. No one should be made to feel that he or she is a failure. The problem with all of that is that it's not how the big, bad world operates, is it? 
The public school creates a false atmosphere that never exists after graduation. And young adults are in, a, are in for a rude awakening. Now, people can be all for equity until you step on their toes or cost them money or get in their way of success or take away their power. Then, as the sage explained a few chapters ago, they'll chew you up and spit you out. As I say, people prefer to be stroked rather than rebuked. So they look for others who will praise them. In fact, apostates of Christianity also recreate churches for themselves, and they turn them into places where they can get their ears tickled, Paul says to Timothy. But the mellifluous, unjustified praise of fools just makes you feel better about your sinful self. That's it. Their praise is like, as the sage says here, thorns under a pot, you know, the crackling. They tend to make a lot of noise, but they give little heat. In other words, they're useless. Now, the person grounded in the realm above the sun is completely different. He rejoices when he's rebuked, whether by divine discipline or from a concerned fellow believer. He rejoices over it because he wants to know truth and that he's living it. When he's sinned, either willingly or unwillingly, he appreciates correction. The psalmist, you remember, says, it is good for me that I was afflicted so that I may learn your statutes. And it was Paul who rejoiced for the thorn in his flesh that God gave him in order to keep him humble, Paul said. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Hebrews 12 large part of it is actually devoted to the benefits of divine discipline and how we should receive it well. Christians live a life of confession. They should. Always keeping current with God, always keeping current with others. The idea is completely foreign to the unsaved mind. Being corrected is bad enough. Welcoming it? Well, that's just ridiculous. Number four, the godly life desires behavior worthy of imitating, which is better than the corrupting influence of the godless. Look at verse seven. For oppression makes a wise person look foolish, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The context here is of a wise person who makes a fool out of himself by taking a bribe. Now, it's hard to be certain what the context of this was, back when the sage was writing, but surely many well-known Bible teachers today and conference speakers and authors just in the past few years have bowed the knee to the whole woke movement in church. You would think that they work for BLM or the left by the way they take a knee or promote COVID mandates or push vaccines or champion woke ideology or criticize pastors who stand their ground, like John MacArthur, if you remember, who sued the state of California and won. As Christians, we should never put our trust in man, of course, so that we we get a good glimpse of their clay feet when, when when they fall apart. Trust Christ, of course. Trust Christ, who's perfect. So why shepherds? Why shepherds can be bought? 
they can give into temptation for personal gain and they can corrupt themselves. That's verse 7. Verse 8 adds to this. And verse 7 sets us, sets us up nicely for verse 8, which introduces a word that needs some clarification. The wise that can fall in verse 7 are, according to verse 8, unseasoned. The wise are not just book smart, you know. No, they, they live what they believe. And those who are seasoned have had the chance to put the principles of the word into practice. They've been proved, if you will. Notice verse 8, the end of the matter is better than the beginning. Patience of spirit is better than arrogance of spirit. God has placed shepherds and godly teachers in our lives for our good. And Paul calls them God's gift to the church in Ephesians chapter 4. But we would do well to look to those shepherds who have had time to prove themselves and to live what they teach. They're seasoned. They're free from overconfidence. They've learned the value of patience. Think about the bar of godliness that we all need to aspire to in Titus 2, right? There's a word there for women. There's a word there for men, both old and new and uh, young. And Paul talks there about godly activity, the walk, what should characterize us. And James also talks about being doers of the word, right? And here's something else. Those who would be regarded by the church, both leaders and widows, we use widows for example, they must meet character qualifications, yes, but they also have to have a sterling track record of godliness. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. For widows, for example, who are over 60 years old, Paul said in 1 Timothy 5 that they need to be above reproach. So this is, this is the conduct. This is the character. They were to be faithful to their husbands. They would have had a, a, a reputation for good works brought up their children, showed hospitality to strangers, washed the saints' feet, assisted those in distress, and devoted uh, themselves to every good work. These are women who are worthy of the church's honor because of their track record, what they did, uh, or what they believe, I should say, uh, backed up their lifestyle. Same for the same for elders, same for shepherds. Actually, it's the same for every Christian man, especially those who aspire to be elders. And among the character qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, that every man should aspire to, by the way, this, there's an interesting word that Paul that Paul inserts into the character qualifications. He says, not being a convert because he could become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. Interesting. Paul would say later, be imitators of me, just as I also, also am of Christ. So he was a seasoned man. Um, the church was not to put unseasoned shepherds in place of office, or, or unseasoned men in the place of shepherds, I should say, because of what can happen here. So we have, we have our character, <clears throat> and we also have our activity. We have to show, we have a track record 
of living godly. The bottom line is that the godly life that belongs to the realm above the sun puts great value in faith that is worthy to be imitated. It would shun, then, those who made or modeled bad behavior, believing that bad company corrupts good morals. It's not completely a foreign idea to the godless that they should have models in life. Of course not. But in their case, they look for models of godless lifestyles. Even if it's the best of the secular life, it's still godless. And the whole point of this passage is that godlessness, or maybe I should say it this way, godliness is far be- a far better option, better than the best that the under-the-sun worldview could ever offer. Godliness is not about getting ahead. It's not about making one's mark in the world. It's not about striking it rich and retiring to the French Riviera. No, the godly life is devoted to pleasing God. It's God's gift to a person who must show his appreciation for it by using it for the glory of God. Number five, a godly person desires to be slow to anger, which is better than sinful anger. It's a very interesting verse. Do not be eager in your spirit to be angry, verse 9, or ang- uh, for anger resides in the heart of fools. Now, there is no better than formula here, but the way it's constructed shows obviously the superior way in which a redeemed life handles anger, far better than the abusive way of the godless life. The impression here is that a quick temper is what characterizes fools. But a a foolish handling of anger is not limited to a short fuse. Clamming up, for example, as some have called it, or a slow burn, is just as bad. It leads to bitterness and eventually to blowing up. (laughs) The sage condemns sinful anger, period. The godless cannot help but abuse it. He, He has no ability to use this God-given emotion the way God has intended. God-given, you say? Yes, God-given, that's right. Not all anger is sinful. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, in fact, he commands us to be angry and yet do not sin. Mm. In other words, be angry in a way that is not sinful but righteous. How do we do that? By using our anger to attack problems, not people. That's how. The two extremes that we pointed out, the blowing up and the clamming up, and every hybrid of the two in between, are completely sinful because those ways are selfish. They are meant to protect the angry person. They are meant to attack the person who who it targets in anger. The emotion of anger is meant really to destroy things. That's what it's meant to do. It's strong. It actually causes a chemical reaction in the brain that feeds itself. I don't know if you know that. Terrible things can happen when a person sees red. Christians that express anger in a godly way will always attack ungodly situations and problems in life, not people. Well, what if the person is the problem? Some of you are thinking that. If it's an unbeliever, 
We cannot expect anything more of them, so we have to minister to them, which, of course, may include confrontation. It may or may not include police. It may or may not include lawsuits. Whatever God allows us to do, of course, that meets the situation. But in these instances, God looks at our motives, so we have to be careful there. With fellow believers, we need to confront any sin in their lives and also engage them in such a way as to help them see their responsibility in fixing the problem that they've caused. Biblical anger is always solution-oriented. Well, there is more we could say about anger, but time won't uh, allow us. Suffice it to say that redeemed people do not use anger as a tool to manipulate or attack others, to get their way, guarantee their selfish desires, put their weight, put, uh, push their weight around, or guarantee their respect. Those are all part of a godless agenda that has no regard for God. Number six, the godly life desires to have a proper view of reality which is better than a morbid view of the past. I really love this one. This is verse 10. Now, this superlative confronts a common view of life under the sun that, that Christians should have no part in. It has to do with an unhealthy view of the past. The past, as you know, provides a resource of information that we can use for our benefit. Every American used to know the benefit of knowing their own history. History courses in our country were the means of preserving our sacred traditions and, and made us who we are as a nation, as well as keeping us from making the mistakes of the past, right? In fact, it's a travesty that those who currently occupy high places in our nation have no use for our patriotic heritage. And they attack it by... by uh, by eradicating our traditions, tearing down statues, desecrating monuments, and removing history from the colleges. History no longer is part of core curriculum in many major universities. What's promoted instead is innovation. Innovation. Let's get out of the dark ages and into the 21st century. But that's a ruse. It's a ruse. The power grabbers just want to divorce Americans from their hardy, independent, patriotic, colonial ancestors. And without a past, new generations have no identity. So the government gives them one. Americans are not the only are not the only ones destined to repeat serious mistakes. They they also have lost their heritage, though, and their identity. The Apostle Paul was a strong believer in recalling the past, past actions of God, past actions of people, in order to teach us the importance of obedience, obedience to God. He says, these things were written for our instruction, he tells the Corinthians, so the redeemed have a healthy view of the past. Having said that, God, godless of, the world, of this world abuse the past by treating it really as reality. This is an unhealthy view of the past. That is, they've made it a, a real place, a place that they can live, where they can live, quite a, quite a bit different, uh, for quite a bit different reasons, but they get stuck there as if in a time warp. 
And the specific scenario that the sage gives is not the only one, but it is among the most popular. It's a morbid nostalgia, a kind of homesickness for a part of life that a person believes was the sweetest, the happiest, the most enjoyable time ever. And he soon becomes preoccupied with the past. Let's, let's take verse 10 uh, in two parts, and I'll show you what I mean. Do not say, what is that? Uh, why, is, why is it that the former days were better than these? He's referring to the present. In this example, the person pines for the good old days. Oh, back in the day. Those were the best years of my life. I wish that I could go back to that time when. Right. Maybe you've, maybe you've said that on occasion. I don't know. Maybe you still think that. But the sage tells us that godly wisdom does not pine for the past or long for it or, or faces debilitating nostalgia. No. The rest of the verse assures us that it is not from wisdom that we would ever say this. In other words, it's not a wise thing that we would say. So why is this so bad? Well, because an ungodly tie to the past puts us out of touch with reality. And when you're stuck in the past, you, you're, pres- you're presently good well for nothing. But more importantly for Christians, this mindset denies certain biblical realities of the redeemed life. It it says that your best years of your life are over. And it's all downhill from here. Somebody just had a birthday. Listen, that is a demonic lie for several reasons. Let me give you a short list, okay? Number one, you're closer today than you ever were before to seeing the Lord face to face. Number two, you are the more mature, you're more mature in Christ and walk more boldly than before. Number three, today you are more intimate with the Lord than you were before. Today you have a more sensitive conscience and understand how much of a sinner you are and how much in need of the gospel you are. Number five, today you have more invested in the kingdom now than ever before. And related to that, number six, that today you have more to do for the cause of Christ. Today is your best life. All that to say that the best years of your life are always right now, always the present, where you're experiencing God's mercies which are new every day, and his grace. While, as I said, there is a healthy way to relate to the past, do you know the Bible really ties the present more with the future than the past? Old Testament saints always lived in light of God's promises, of Messiah coming, of his kingdom coming, and it's no different from us. We look for Christ's coming, and we look for the better country, for an enduring inheritance, do we not? Life that belongs to the realm above the sun believes that it is wise to learn from our past, but live in light of the future and see your best days as always present. Number seven, godly life desires to display a godly wisdom which is better than human wisdom. The sage has said much about wisdom, as you know, both godly and human, in the first half of the book and and thought it was worth rehearsing 
with us again. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and, the, and an advantage to those who see the sun. The sage likens godly wisdom to an inheritance. Inheritance is a good thing. It puts its beneficiaries at an advantage over those who are foolish, wisdom does, by giving them a, a clear sense of reality. And unlike the one who hides himself from reality, who looks the other way, puts his head in the sand and, and doesn't face facts, doesn't put himself where he can see clearly. This is in the sun, S-U-N. The godly wise, well, they don't hide themselves from what is true and real. They don't keep themselves in the dark out of the sun. No, they, they don't try to redefine reality away or deny it if it, if it makes them uncomfortable. They, they see reality for what it is and they embrace it and know how to live in it. And as the sage elaborated a bit more in verse 12 by, by claiming that godly wisdom actually protects those who use it, he says, for wisdom is protection, just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom keeps the possessors alive. Biblical wisdom prolongs life. That's really the, the secret to a long life. It's wisdom. It's fear of God. Now, Proverbs 4.10, classic uh, example of, of wisdom literature that, that, that teaches this. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. Money can buy you all kinds of protection, but being wise is just as good, if not better, we know, of course, that living the Christian life can incur severe persecution and even martyrdom. That's true. Sometimes God calls us to do things that might harm us for his namesake. We don't deny that. But as a general rule, living wisely, that is to say biblically, will keep you alive unlike foolishly living, which risks premature death. Well, as I bring this to a close, I want to say that Jesus was the wisest man who ever lived. Do you know that? And in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he sums up the message of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verses 1 to 12, perfectly. Oh, yes. And we read it, um, or we've read it, rather, already in our, in, our, uh, um, in our scripture reading, so I'll not read it again. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 3 to 13 but I will quote Ian Proven, Old Testament commentator, uh, and from his commentary in Ecclesiastes, who explains well just how this per, uh, portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount communicates the sage's words on the better life. Let's, let's close with this. He says, quote, Jesus' Beatitudes in Matthew 5 set a larger context in which the whole of the sage's message can in fact be more clearly heard. It is only in this larger context that it becomes clear that those who mourn will indeed be comforted and those who refrain from grasping after gain but instead adopt the attitude of the poor and the meek will in due course inherit the earth that they have not sought to control that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are the merciful are merciful to others rather than hungering and thirsting after success and power and trampling on their neighbors to possess 
they will be filled with good things and will, will know mercy. And those who have integrity and pursue peace instead of domination will see God and be owned by God. And that those who know the world's anger because of the pursuit of righteousness will receive their due reward from God. End quote. And is right. Father, we thank you for this time together that we could spend our time on this day looking at your words, words from your mouth that you bore the writer of Ecclesiastes to record and then protected down through the ages that they may wind up in our hands so we could read them and know you better, know the better life, the life in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would be as diligent as the sage himself in these last days to reason with people who need Christ, to appeal to their sanity, to their logic, as we show them the better way in contrast to the absolute miserable way of life under the sun. Help us, we pray, to destroy the fortresses and ideologies that people build for themselves and hide behind with the supernatural weapon of your word that we might supplant them with the biblical worldview, the worldview that comes from above the sun. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.